You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Earthbound, released January 30th, 1981. It was written by Michael Fisher, directed by James L. Conway, and released by Taft International Pictures. Really, Taft? (laughs) (laughs) That's a reference I don't get. (laughs) So Tom Brokaw was reading news that hadn't happened yet oh <laughs> gerald ford dead today attacked by wolf and what are the chances that that's going to happen taft was really taft <laughs> not much in the way of production information here because there wasn't much of a production at all the film was shot over the course of two weeks on 16 millimeter film as a network series pilot it was not picked up. They <laughs> put it in wow. theaters. Yeah. Wow. Um, that also explains like the slew <laughs> of just all the cast I was looking up. Like only TV, only TV, yeah. only TV. Same for the crew, for a lot of them. But that also means that they took what was meant to be thirty minutes, of stuff <laughs> yeah, and crammed or it being or generous s- like a uh, an hour long special. Okay, an hour long, a two parter special intro episode, and they spread it out across an hour and forty Ugh, some minutes. Gross. We start with aerial footage of the mountains around the I think fictional town of Gold Rush, California. You're right. It's when you Google Gold Rush, California, it doesn't help. <laughs> yeah, uh, apparently, according to IMDb, this was all shot in Utah. Right. We settle in the mountains at a burial site where Tommy Anderson is telling his grandfather Ned about a dream he had. Ned here is being played by Burl Ives. The dream involves a bunch of white horses wandering around the hotel Ned owns. Tommy doesn't remember much else except that Ned was very angry about the horses and that his parents were there instead of dead and buried in front of him now. Just the mom and dad were there. Like they never died. The two kneel in front of the headstone for Thomas and Ellen Anderson. They both died in 1978. We'll learn later in a car accident. As they turn to leave, Tommy asks if the graves will be relocated for a rumored housing development. Someone named Madden is trying to convince stockholders to buy this land, or to sell it, I guess, to an investor. But Ned assures that that won't happen. Ned says that it would be a crime to develop this natural land into living space, except for the sprawling hotel that he already built. Right. That was fine. (laughs) There's so many weird things about, like, I thought that they were visiting this place and they kept when they kept saying is like we can come back to my hotel is like it's like where they have a room like no, no like, he the, owns this no, whole hotel he owns a hotel that's very far away from here yeah which is completely weird and unnecessary mm-hmm. like why does it not it couldn't all... have been a small hotel on the same grounds as the rest of the gold yeah. rush town why, why does this all not take place in the same place like the hotel could just be a half mile down the road from where we are mm-hmm. right now like because what's this is supposed point? to be podunk nowhere and they wouldn't have stockholders interested in a hotel in the middle of nowhere i guess but, but they why have does land have development be... apparently but why <laughs> does it have to be in the middle of nowhere it doesn't okay just making sure that there's no point to there being two locations in this movie. We cut from this wholesome scene to evil music sting. 600 miles away at night, 
An FBI agent is led into an underground military base. He kind of looks like Eric Roberts. Mm -hmm. He is briefed on the situation. A UFO has entered Earth's atmosphere, and they've confirmed that the craft was not launched by any nation on Earth. Though, unless this story takes place in some futuristic utopia, I doubt there's any way they could confirm that. One guy's monitor is filled completely with the words heat displacement at a meaningless <laughs> number, and he dutifully reads it aloud. Well, there's a definite heat displacement, sir. <laughs> Another computer operator makes a masterful deduction. If none of the countries on Earth sent this craft up, does that mean it's a UFO? It always bothers me in these kinds of movies when an expert pretends that a UFO is inherently alien. All UFO means is that the craft hasn't been identified, and these are the people in charge of identifying it. So yeah, if you don't know what that is, it's a UFO. They're tracking the ship to a landing, a crash landing, near Gold Rush, California, and we cut back to... And they once again confirmed that that is 600 miles from here. Right. <laughs> I was like... In case you, you forgot, it's very important that you understand <laughs> yeah. where this bunker is. Yes, you have to know that it's exactly 600 miles. Yeah, it's like borderline. We're getting it in yards eventually. Um, <laughs> oh my God, I forgot about that. <laughs> We cut back to what I thought was a 4th of July festivities, but it's called Founders Day. They're having a Founders Day parade. And, and the, oh, God, as a Californian, seeing all these fireworks in the hands of children yeah. is just infuriating. Yep. People are crowding the streets of the town. Fireworks are blasting off everywhere. A phone rings at the police station, and Deputy Sweeney, played by Stuart Pankin, is slow to answer it. He's distracted by a magazine about H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. He almost grabs the receiver, but instead collects a chocolate bar near the phone. And when he finally answers it, we can only assume from his face that it's NASA calling, or whoever these people are. We cut out to the street, where Sheriff Dorita, played by John Shuck, is all smiles with the people enjoying the festivities. A police car rolls down the street with an outhouse on the roof, and Dorita takes surprisingly long to notice it's his own squad car, and begins following it on foot. Suddenly the air raid sirens are blaring. Dorita tries to turn it off, but it's broken. Sweeney wants to explain why he turned it on in the first place, but the alarm is so loud that he has to yell everything. It's top secret! It's flying saucers! Of course, he shouts this loud enough for everyone in town to learn about the incoming visitors. When Dorita heads inside to take the call, Sweeney confirms to everyone outside that alien ships are inbound, but now he mixes the space agency's message with details from his magazine and adds that the aliens are blue scaly things and that they've already destroyed Chicago and New York. So I don't think that this was, I think it was a mishearing by the audience. It wasn't him intentionally misconstruing the information. He said, it's just like yeah. scaly blue aliens and when they destroyed Chicago and New York. So like he's comparing it to his book, Oh, but then instantly the information got out to them and they were thinking oh this is what actually happened i thought he said like it's it's all right here they've already destroyed chicago like i thought he believes that they've destroyed these well, cities i i think he, what he's saying when he says it's all right here is that this is the the plan has been outlined yeah like the, this this is how it's going to be if they were if we were ever attacked yeah but if you kept, but if he kept reading he would find out that in war of the worlds they all die because of the germs. So right. everything is going to work out. Spoiler alert. Just go sneeze on them. You'll be fine. Everybody sneeze into the woods. <laughs> Everybody starts to panic except for the one guy who seems to understand that this was a comic book that he was referencing. That idiot's talking about a comic book. Everyone freezes in place when a UFO passes overhead and appears to confirm everything that Sweeney has said. 
Sweeney takes a chainsaw to the post with the air raid siren to finally silence it, and it comes crashing down, caving in a police cruiser. Dorita gets up on the car and tries to calm the crowd. Some of the people have family in the allegedly destroyed cities, but for some reason these townspeople are also dressed in mid-1800s garb. Like a bunch of the ladies are wearing like old it's school Founders bonnets. Day. It's Founders Day. That's how you dress on Founders Day. Is that how you dress on Founders Day? That's, <laughs> that's, not, how, you dress that's on not how I dress on Founders Day. <laughs> um, I was also <laughs> very confused early on doing my pre-research before I watched, and I was looking at like Gold Rush town, Gold Rush like person like gold rush what what year does this movie take place it's like yeah there's nasa and there's also a gold rush and bonnets dorita convinces the crowd that the craft was not landing but crashing and suggests that it's their duty to find the aliens first and stave off a larger attack until the national guard can arrive the people take up arms and nearly turn a raccoon into swiss cheese in their hunt for the aliens Dorita finds Ned and Tommy and asks if they're willing to stay behind because someone is supposedly bringing coffee and donuts to this location. They agree to wait on the side of the bridge over a ravine. I, I like that someone in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night, for 150 people, they confirm that it's 150 people, yeah. is getting coffee and donuts. Yeah. And he's like, I don't want them to follow us the whole way to where we're going. Just stop them here yeah. and do what? Eat all the donuts myself? What am I supposed to do? They're still going to be waiting for you to come back if they bring enough food for 150 people. Once they're alone, they start hearing sounds from the woods. As Ned and Tommy move together into the trees, Ned suddenly finds a young boy at the end of his shotgun, about Tommy's age, maybe 10 or 11. Suddenly, three more people, a father, mother, and sister in matching blue jumpsuits, step out from behind a tree and plead for Ned's mercy in plain, fluent English. The father, Zeph, begs for Ned's help, claiming to be a scared father himself, just looking to protect his family. Before Ned responds, Lara, the mother alien, thanks Ned for trusting them, suggesting that these may be betazoids, capable of reading someone's thoughts just by interpreting their facial expressions. <laughs> a passing jeep full of National Guardsmen sees Ned and Tommy in the ravine and asks what they're up to, and the man doesn't believe Ned's answers, so Lara lets them know that he is suspicious. Zeph concentrates for a moment, causing the jeep horn to beep wildly. Then the hood pops open, and the jeep rears up on its back tires and races down the road. They're going to pull a lot of uh, Witch Mountain shit in this yeah i've it's never like, seen that one it's like oh oh we just have alien powers that can do things yeah yeah but like they're there's they're stupid about which powers they select at any yep. given moment yes yeah. because i think that it's weirdly suspicious in this moment to have things happen to this car that are completely unexplainable yeah. by general forces of nature yeah it could just the horn honking i think could happen yes naturally but having it rear up on its back tires and, and, and drive away flap it's like okay its hood well, up and, and down repeatedly yeah, and it's alien definitely odd. did that yeah we're coming back here zeph tells ned that their ship was damaged in the crash and the kid alien dalem lets it slip that their ship crashed into the lake a brilliant move on the part of the filmmakers who won't have to show this craft much. Yep. Zeph explains that they learned English from our radio and TV broadcasts, but unfortunately they haven't heard much in our broadcasts about a specific metal that they need to repair their ship. They're not sure that they'll find enough of it on Earth when suddenly they encounter an ape in the same baby blue jumpsuit sitting on the high branch of a tree. If this were a higher definition transfer, I might have noticed in this scene that the ape has been painted green. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm glad they call it out later because yeah. I wouldn't have noticed throughout the entire movie. Yeah. We see Mr. Conrad, the Eric Roberts-looking FBI guy, touching down in a helicopter and meeting with Sheriff Dorita and Gold Rush. I don't know if he's FBI, but I'm just going to keep calling him FBI because he's basically a stand-in for the FBI. Dorita tells him that they have all the roads out of town blocked. Conrad is ushered to the phone to take a call from the White House. Unclear who this is at the White House, except that his name is Dave. Mm -hmm. Sec Def, President. Either way, I feel like Conrad would be using his title and not just the name Dave. Yeah. Unless it's a guy who snuck in like a doppelganger, like in the movie Dave. <laughs> I, I just assumed, I assumed that it was probably like a cousin or sibling at first that was like in a higher office. Yeah. Had got him, gotten him a job. Maybe. That's never confirmed. No. Just, that's just a speculation by their... This would be like a season two arc. Yeah. <laughs> Conrad is made aware that if he flubs this mission, that his entire department will be completely liquidated. We cut to Ned's roomy cabin where Jin Jin, the ape, is conked out on a beanbag chair and Tommy and Dalem have apparently been entrusted to share a bed. Yeah. Like he's letting his grandkids sleep in a bed with an alien that might eat his grandkid in the middle of the night. Right, we know and, nothing about these guys. And and the, the alien sister is also sharing- is, The room. Is, is sharing the room yeah. with them. Dalem is showing Tommy footage of his discoveries on other life-supporting planets. He's able to play clips off of a tiny flip phone. The sister alien, Tiva, jokes that Dalem only likes planets with creepy crawly creatures, and Dalem shoots back that Tiva only likes planets with teenage boys, which caught me off guard at first because I thought this was the mom alien <laughs> in the next bed, until she shouts, Mom! Dalem says Tiva wants to meet Sean Cassidy or John Travolta, and she calls him a Gula Thornton. You little Gula Thornton. She called me a Gula Thornton. I've been trying to go to sleep, but Dale won't turn that thing off. The kids are all tucked in for the night. Downstairs, Zeph is reading some of Ned's books for information, possibly leading to his missing metal, and when he gives up on a particular book, he floats it across the room onto a bookshelf with his mind, and, and we, Ned is flabbergasted. Yeah, and we get like that magical musical sting. <laughs> like a slide whistle yeah <laughs> and i really want that to not be part of the soundtrack of the movie but that's just the sound their alien magic makes yep. whenever they do something it just makes like this yeah that's happening very in the audible scene. like noise <laughs> ned is flabbergasted by this like he didn't just see this guy make a jeep pop a wheelie an hour ago i keep forgetting that we can do some things that you can't it must be rather upside down to you Honey, I think the word is upsetting. Yeah. This line would have made more sense if upside down didn't also make perfect sense in the context of yeah. the sentence. <laughs> According to Zeph on their planet, the metal they need is called Solarian Ore. But he doesn't know what it's called here. What are the chances that this alien species also uses solar to describe stars and ore to describe raw metal material? To complicate matters further, they arrived here through a wormhole or window and it will be closing soon. If they don't find the metal in time, they miss their shot home, lost in space style. Ned suggests the alien family join him and Tommy on a drive to his hotel way out of town, which happens to be just down the street from a university with a library that might have helpful information. We'd be horrified to join you. Honored, honey. <laughs> he means honored. We get a quick redundant scene of Dorita telling Conrad that all the roads are blocked again. <laughs> I don't know why we had to hear this twice. Now they're really blocked. The next day, in the RV, the alien kids talk about the elk they see outside the car. I saw them on television. They're insurance salesmen. 
They're not insurance salesmen? They're called elk. You find them all over in these parts. They're animals. Insurance salesmen have to be people. Ned pulls up to a police roadblock and tells everybody to be quiet while he bluffs Dorita. I really wanted... Oh, sorry. Sorry, can we go back to this insurance salesman joke? Joke is a strong word. I don't get it. Is that... I'm trying to think, is there like... No. There isn't an insurance company that has an elk as like a mascot or something that i'm not i think the joke is insurance salesman is such the wrong word for elk that it's funny i i oh i think it would have been funnier had it been like a donkey or something like that or or like a pig or or a milk (laughs) like something that sounded like it they're called milk no elk yeah, that makes more sense to me. But like, I was just trying to figure it out because I'm like Hartford Bank or something. Like, like I'm trying to think of things that have that Antlers. as the mascot that they got confused. No, I think mm-hmm. the, no. the the joke is literally just look at how fucking stupid these aliens are. Okay. They can't like they can speak fluent English, but then they fuck up one word so badly that it's insane. It doesn't make any sense. I'm gonna double down on my insurance idea here. I think it is because of the Hartford, the Hartford Insurance Group. Okay. Their logo is like a big deer guy, and they sell insurance. Uh, how long have they been around? 211 years, Richard. And when does this take place, though? <laughs> <laughs> there were bonnets and a gold rush. Yeah. Okay. I'm just saying. I think they saw commercials for the Hartford, and they assumed that that means that these were insurance. Maybe that is the joke that's happening here. Yeah. Either way, it's a dumb joke. It is a dumb joke. I'm just—I just want to be right. <laughs> okay. So, so I, I, I don't disagree. I'm just more curious about this agency. Are they a national? Yeah. Okay. You've never heard of the Hartford? I have not. But I, but that I, logo doesn't look familiar. It does not. Okay. Ned pulls up to a police roadblock, and he tells everybody to be quiet while he bluffs Dorita. I really wanted Dorita to start with, "Hey, so didn't I ask you to wait for the people with the donuts and coffee last <laughs> night? What the fuck? You just left, and now I look like an asshole." They just left him in a heap in the middle of the road. The raccoons got to him. (laughs) We should have shot that thing when we had the chance. (laughs) But now we can't because they're all caffeinated. (laughs) And huge. Dorita tries to give them a pass, but Conrad notices that the vehicle was not checked, and he demands a look inside. When they enter the RV, we get a completely predictable moment with the alien family having the unestablished ability to turn invisible on command. Of course, the one member of their team that can't is the green ape but luckily for ned the green ape is apparently the least suspicious looking passenger he was transporting like how much how how different would it have been if there were five people sitting in here yeah like for some reason humans would have been really suspicious but a green ape is just like okay well also it's an rv do you not have a bathroom you could stick him in yeah or any amount of storage space yeah or can't they make him turn invisible if they hold on to him? Well, they can't do that to the other humans, so maybe not. Okay. The cops don't give the ape a second thought. Our pet monkey. He spilled a can of green paint all over him. You can drive on. I feel like it should have been strike one that these people don't know the difference between a monkey and an ape. It's like, are you really qualified to have an ape as a pet if you think this is a monkey? After the RV leaves, the family reappears gasping for air because they have to hold their breath to disappear. They all arrive at a huge suite in the hotel that Ned owns. This is like a giant fucking hotel. Yeah. Because literally their hotel suite is two stories. 
Ned walks the alien parents over to the telephone in the room to teach them how to use it, but we cut away before he starts his lesson. The kids head over to the hotel pool, and Dalem notices a nest full of baby birds, but his sister is distracted by cute boys by the pool. Aren't they cute? They sure are. What are they called? Doves. Dalem just grabs a dove right out of its nest, and then we cut back to the room where Ned concludes his telephone <laughs> lesson needlessly. <laughs> like, like if they'd only the showed telephone. the beginning, I wouldn't have remembered that this happened, but thank God we came back to it. So I know that he finished telling them about the phone. A hotel employee named Willie enters panicked. He says the big freezer is broken, a bunch of tablecloths are missing, and the manager, Billings, quit. Ned is suspicious. Think Madden had anything to do with this? Rumor has it, sir, that Madden gave Billings a job in a big hotel in Hawaii and money to get there on. Ned tells the stranded aliens that he has more pressing matters to worry about than getting them back to their home planet. For example, tomorrow's stockholders meeting. He's basically like Robin Williams at the beginning of Hook, where his priorities are completely out of whack. <laughs> but it's not played that way. It's like, no, 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 this is very important. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, important yeah. that this old man's hotel sell for the proper amount. Ned puts Tommy in charge of leading the aliens to a science library. Dalem wants to come along because Tommy promised to introduce him to his friends, and I think in the middle of this scene is where I noticed that Zeph's voice is getting scratchier and scratchier to the yeah. point that I almost can't understand him. I think the actor like had strep throat, and they were like, whatever, we only have two weeks to shoot. They'll, they'll just think you're Gary Busey. Yeah. That's a good idea. If we're going to make the most of our stay here, we should meet with Earth children of their age. Tiva is invited to hang out with Willie's sister, who's about her age, and similarly interested in boys. Suddenly, Jin Jin, or Chin Chin, or whatever this ape is called, jumps up and knocks over a big glass bowl of fruit from the wet bar. Oh no! <laughs> the greatest read ever. <laughs> Another completely predictable moment, these characters have the ability to reverse time and undo mistakes. This power seems incredibly useful, but goes largely underused for the rest of the film, much like their invisibility powers. How about we just back up to the point at which you went through this wormhole? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I, I don't think that they're going back in time. I think that they're... they're Pushing an object backward in time. I, no, I don't even think it's that. I think that it's supposed to appear that they've just fixed it with telekinetic powers. But Maybe. they're just playing it in reverse. But when they rewind the shot, it's not just the shot playing in reverse. It's the shot of a second glass bowl clattering yeah. to the floor in reverse because otherwise it would have ended with the monkey catching it and pulling it back up onto the counter. Oh, yeah. But they didn't bother to make the two bowls look similar at all. So, like, the first one has a giant pineapple prominently in the center of the bowl, and there's not even a pineapple in the second bowl. <laughs> Where'd the pineapple go? <laughs> You're so angry about Dalem this. points out that she forgot a banana and instead of floating it up to the bowl she makes it float in circles around his head and then go into his mouth and then we cut to the track <laughs> which is <laughs> his like eyes are crossed as he's holding this banana in his mouth this is this is i mean this was the point i officially checked out of this movie I is know, this right? is that where the audience clapping was supposed to lead into a commercial like, break i i i was like are you why would you allow it to go into your mouth? <laughs> yeah, well, because it started in his mouth, and then they played it in reverse coming out of his mouth to swing around, because there's no way he would be able to bite it off of the string. So they said, hold it in your mouth and cross your eyes, and then we'll take it out of your mouth and swing it around your head three times, and we'll play that shot in reverse. And that's what they did. 
We cut to the track at the local university where Zeph, Tommy, and Dalem talk about school. Dalem explains that they attend class on the spaceship taught by their parents, and then Tommy explains that he doesn't have parents. Dalem tries to apologize, but Tommy says not to worry and runs off. Because he can read Tommy's emotions, Dalem asks his dad why Tommy pretended it didn't bother him. Sometimes some things hurt so much. It's hard to make it there. They watch people throw shot puts, and then Zeph lies to Tommy that he lost his father at a similar age. I guess that'll cheer him up. Dalem throws a shot put so hard that he launches it across campus and an assistant coach notices. They all run away before they can be scouted. <laughs> the assistant coach tells the head coach about this world record toss. The head coach here looks like Paul Walter Hauser, the guy who played Richard Jewell in Clint Eastwood's movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when the coach learns that this shot put expert was a 10-year-old, he advises his assistant to stay out of the sun for the rest of the day. A team of National Guardsmen swarm Ned's cabin and quickly locate a full set of matching jumpsuits that the aliens wore to our planet, hanging neatly in a closet. But that's not what triggered them. What right. triggered them was, this one's got green hair. But it's green, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, about as much sense as a green monkey. God damn, I'm a fucking idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck beans, that was them, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> when the guys come out with a monkey, we'll... Fuck beans! That was them, wasn't it? I remember crying and laughing at that line in the theater. <laughs> Dalem and Tommy are approached by Pudge, a bully from Tommy's... <laughs> I know, why? That's his name. <laughs> the credits, his name is Pudge. I was, it though. I was so sure that they said Butch or something because that's like a bully name and things. But the kid's name is Pudge. What fucked up parent named their kid Pudge? I'm sure it's a nickname. He's not even fat. It's an ironic nickname. He's not even skinny. He's just he's a normal average. kid. He's he's at the he's the most average kid I've ever seen, and his name is Pudge. But Pudge is the captain of the rival sixth-grade basketball team that was recently beaten by Tommy's team. Pudge challenges them to a rematch. <laughs> I was sure it was a typo on IMDb until the credits at the end. It's like, what the fuck? It's really Pudge? Oh, okay. I'm sorry. I have it, I have it under control. <laughs> on the court, Tommy sees that they've been set up. Pudge has enlisted the help of two 8th graders that were recently flunked down to 6th grade. <laughs> Is that a thing? I know. Like, you can go two grades back? I, don't, I didn't no, even I know didn't you could go one grade you back. Held, you just do the grade over again. back so you don't get to proceed, but you don't go backwards. Yeah, they never go like, hold on, your last teacher was wrong. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're going back. You're going back further. The game is fairly one-sided until toward the end, Dalem starts utilizing his ability to lift Tommy off the ground for impossible jumps to help the Bearcats win the game over the Third Street Lions. The whole cheater portion is being played under the Harlem Globetrotters theme. Yeah, and why didn't they just do this from the beginning? I don't know. Why, why did he sit on the sidelines for so long? Maybe because he didn't want Tommy to cheat at a game that he was losing 100% fairly. And then he realized that it's worth it more to cheat at the game so that his friend will win and they don't lose their bikes. Because that's what the, the stakes are for this game. They're going to lose their bikes. Because they don't want to appear to be chicken. Right. 
At first, we thought that the Harlem Globetrotters theme would have been an expensive choice here until we realized that it's actually just a jazz standard, Sweet Georgia Brown, composed in 1925, and they probably didn't have to pay the Globetrotters anything for the rights to play it. Back at the hotel pool, Tiva is talking into her diary necklace about all the cute boys. Zeph sneaks into the science laboratory where he discovers a very small sample of Silurian ore, which must have some name on Earth because they have it here cataloged in a science library, but he's interrupted by a security guard. The guard threatens to take him to headquarters if he doesn't provide identification, and when Zeph says he doesn't have ID, the guard moves to unholster his gun to enforce the penalty of death Yeah, <laughs> for not having your ID in a school library. You don't have your BIM mark. Yeah. Richard, you made an Apple reference. I did. <laughs> Zeph uses his powers to pull the fire alarm across the room, activating the sprinkler system, which would for sure not be water in this laboratory, I would think. It'd like be like Halon or, yeah. or something. It wouldn't, like, all the sodium is just exploding. <laughs> what is this? Rain? What would have made more sense would be to rewind the guard out of the lab and then hold your breath and be invisible when he came in. Well, he can't do that alone. He can't do what alone? You have to you be in pairs. You have to be holding somebody's oh. hands, which is why they... I didn't know that. Yeah. I, I didn't realize they needed two people to turn invisible. Right. But they could have been invisible at the beginning when the when the car drove up because all four of them were together at that point. That's true. The phone rings in the hotel and Laura is now qualified to answer it. It's her husband calling from the school to announce that he has found some of their magic metal. And, some, had, and somehow he has money for a payphone. Right. <laughs> I used the metal. <laughs> I put it in this phone. I don't know how to get it back. He admits that he was caught by school security as she shares a problem of her own. Apparently, their ape has been eating all the light bulbs in the hotel suite. Well, Jinjin has discovered they have a form of Ulex in them. <laughs> you know how much she loves Ulex. Apparently, the ape got out of the room and started eating other light bulbs in the hotel before Laura finally heard the screams from other hotel guests. I feel like this would be a bigger problem than it ends up being. Yeah. Walking back through the track area, Zeph tosses a second shot put beyond the horizon, and the same assistant coach says, I wish he hadn't have done that. So he rewinds the ball all the way back to the ground in front of him. In that case, pretend it didn't happen. I really wanted him to say, I really wish you hadn't done that. Yeah. Because <laughs> that would have been a funnier joke. Yeah. Willie's sister tells Tiva that the boys around this pool are only interested in athletic girls. Tiva does an impossible dive for everyone, but the boy she impresses most is Conrad, secret agent, <laughs> <laughs> who takes her into custody. We cut to Sweeney getting Tiva's fingerprints at the station. How far reaching is Sweeney's jurisdiction that he's still in charge of processing people arrested at the university in the next town over? Is it true that all the people on Mars are only two feet tall? He asks a five foot six alien woman. As soon as he's taken down all of her fingerprints, Tiva magically erases them from the record. Conrad is on the phone with Dave again, begging for more time to close his investigation. Dave gives him 12 hours to prove that this girl is an alien. Tommy asks Ned how things are going, and of course Ned assumes he cares about the hotel management and not the alien family they are trying to shepherd through a wormhole. We have another chic character <laughs> seated in the lobby who intends to buy this hotel once Madden has sufficiently devalued it. Ned is disgusted about Madden's plan to take down his huge building and replace it with a different huge building. Ned asks Tommy how his plan is going, and he says that the food is waiting in the kitchen, whatever that means. That line confused me a lot. 
like he's like oh how's your how's how's everything going with you and he's like perfect the food's waiting in the kitchen wink like there's some secret plan involving food and it's literally just i'm gonna go pick up dinner and give it to the family to eat or if it was like some kind of code whatever it is tommy limps all the way to the kitchen and is followed yeah yeah they explain it later yeah but they hadn't they didn't mention that he was injured at the game i don't right exactly which is weird but he limps all the way through the kitchen and he's followed along this way by multiple undercover agents tommy collects a large bag of food from the chef and then walks straight into a laundry room when the agents follow him into the laundry room they notice that the door to the laundry chute is swinging back and forth naturally they assume that he has gone down the chute but because there are two of them one can go down the chute to investigate while the other checks the room more thoroughly just kidding they both stupidly go down the chute tommy emerges from his hiding place in a cabinet after the two men slide into a locked laundry room below tommy brings the big bag of food back to a room where the alien family is staying which is for some reason not their hotel room anymore it looks like they're staying at some sort of a gift shop with all this like leather shit on the walls but the transfer is so bad that i can't read the sign on the door the family has made a plan to rescue tiva from her confines zeph calls conrad directly and comes clean explaining their entire situation he offers conrad indisputable proof of alien life in exchange for his daughter's safe return zeph puts laura and dalem in charge of collecting the salarian ore they need while he collects their daughter even though they are aliens with insane powers zeph thinks conrad has an advantage because he's allowed to hurt people whereas they cannot do that zeph meets conrad and tiva in the middle of a football field conrad is alone as promised for now but he's sending a signal to a bunch of cops to summon them all to the field zeph offers conrad a small black brick which he claims is absolute proof of alien life and conrad pulls a gun on him zeph opens the cylinder of conrad's gun and pushes all the bullets out of it with his mind you're jackass mr conrad i think it's jackass daddy yeah that too come on zeph and tiva hold their breath and go invisible as they run away for some reason instead of just leaving they choose to disappear and reappear in funny places like sitting on a goalpost or all the way up on the lights over the field the crowd of gunmen grow impatient and chase the father-daughter alien team to the edge of one of the buildings on campus where they seem cornered of course because these people can jump extremely high they can also survive very long drops and jump harmlessly off the building to the parking lot where they should be easy targets for all these guns but nobody shoots now for some reason surviving this jump impresses sweeney more than their ability to turn invisible i saw that i don't believe that conrad thinks they still have the advantage because they know exactly when this family plans on leaving the planet but for all he knows zeph made that stuff up he doesn't yeah. really know anything all, all all i know is what he told me on the phone hopefully it's true I mean, and and that would have been a thing like what i thought he was going to say earlier when he says they can do something that we can't i thought he was gonna say lie. lie yeah that would make more sense we cut to the stockholder meeting at the hotel madden is about to make a speech and his men are handing out fraudulent expense reports to all the tables of stockholders ned moves back inside the hotel to find the paperwork that will prove that the hotel is making a profit but the archives are a mess madden has thrown all the files around the room in a big heap so they'll take too long to sort if i were madden though i would have just stolen all this paperwork or destroyed it or whatever but and why does he have access to all these rooms in the hotel why does madden yeah i feel like he he works there in some some general capacity capacity, yeah but he's not the manager billings is the manager so i don't know what madden's title is at this hotel zeph and tiva show up and ned tells them that there are national guardsmen staying at his cabin and teams dredging the lake for their craft 
When Zeph and Tiva hear about Madden lying to Ned's stockholders, they offer to solve that problem. They force Madden to admit on stage that the reports that he handed out are fraudulent. Zeph drags Madden's glass of water back and forth across the podium to distract him while Tiva gets inside his head. I have nothing to gain from this except the $200,000 finder's fee from the Sheik. What I mean is, uh, this is not only a good, but a necessary move for us stockholders, as can clearly be seen by these falsified reports I've made you about. The crowd is quickly furious and boos him off stage. Ned asks the stockholders to vote, and they all vote against selling the hotel. Back at the mineral science lab, Laura and Dalem look for Solarian ore, but have the common sense to hide when the guard enters the lab. Apparently, it, it takes two to tango invisibly. I didn't know that. Yeah. Also, that this guard frequently checks his lab. Yeah. Unless they're just being stupid and being really obvious when they walk up to it. It's like, someone went in there again. I can't believe it. Before they leave the lab, Laura activates a machine that I think is supposed to search the entire planet for more Solarian ore. Zeph and Tommy are saying their goodbyes when Tommy finally explains his limp. He pulled a muscle in that basketball game, and Zeph massages his leg to fix the muscle. Jeff waits until Tommy's leg is healed to admit that by simply laying his hands on Tommy, Zeph has accessed all of Tommy's personal memories in a blatant invasion of privacy. Your favorite color is blue? Your batting average in Little League last year was 368. Zeph tells Tommy it's okay to cry about his parents, and he does. Now we get a turn of events that makes more sense in a TV show pilot than in a movie. Laura and Dalem meet up with Zeph and inform him that there's not enough of the metal they need to repair their ship. They will die on Earth. <laughs> I mean, they don't have to. They obviously have extremely advanced science and brain powers, and they could easily revolutionize our space program. But instead, they're probably just going to hang out in Gold Rush, California forever. Back at the hotel, Ned invites them to stay because he thinks of them as family now. All the characters sit around talking about what a great TV show this will be. The kids will teach each other human culture, things will be difficult, and the government will always be after them. Credits would have been nice here, but instead we get a fourth act where they all team up to hide their spacecraft to cover their tracks. Ned's plan is to push the ship underwater into a bottomless pit in the middle of the lake it landed in. Zeph and the kids head to the lake while Tiva and Laura hack into the U.S. Government Computer Center yeah, to falsify records. Right. Which they just exposed a guy and accused him. Like, yeah. They, they just stopped. Madden so, is a bad guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's not good for bad guys to falsify records. It's only good if we do it. So many mixed messages. It's, yeah. like, it's okay to cheat in the basketball game. It's okay to develop land if it's for my super expensive hotel, not if it's for their super expensive yeah. hotel. He's a chic. As they approach the lake, Jeff and the boys encounter a bunch of National Guardsmen on horseback. Because one of them can't turn invisible, Dalem is forced to psychically beg the horses to turn around. What is wrong with these animals? What is wrong with them? And race home as fast as you can. Zeph and the boys put on their wetsuits and dive under the surface of the lake to swim toward their sunken craft, which they find fairly instantly. For whatever reason, Zeph and Dalem don't turn invisible as soon as they're underwater. I guess because they're not holding hands. Mm-hmm. They all make it inside the spacecraft, and Zeph asks them to collect as much as they can since they'll never see this ship again or their home planet again. The agents in the boat looking for the craft are right above them now, and Zeph manages to get it moving toward the pit, so they escape the craft and swim to shore. On land, Dalem admits that he's scared about staying on Earth, but Zeph assures him 
that with Tommy and Ned's help, they'll be all right. The National Register headline the following day reads, Massive Flying Saucer Hunt Called Off, Labeled Hoax. We see Zeph being promoted to hotel manager in Billings' absence. He apologizes for cleaning the pool incorrectly, because apparently he used his mind powers to lift all the water and then sweep the pool underneath it. The shot put coach notices his assistant is sitting in his office listening to the radio in the dark, and he steps inside to check on him. All right, now what's the matter? Did the man come back and throw the shot put again? No. Then did the little boy come back again? And did he throw the shot put again? No. And why on earth are you sitting here in the dark? Because the little boy's green monkey ate my light bulb. This is the final line of the film, and it ranks up there with Roadhouse's A polar bear fell on me. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the end of our film. <sighs> yeah, it was brutal. I, I can't imagine why this wasn't picked up. I would have picked it up. And thrown, and thrown it, it in, in the, the trash. trash. <laughs> <laughs> Litter this shit. Our director here was James L. Conway. He directed our previous alien crash landing film, Hangar 18, in 1980, we still have The Boogans to cover from Conway this year. He also directed seven MacGyvers, including a personal favorite birthday. Yeah. Uh, which has almost as much action as this episode of this show did. <laughs> Writer Michael Fisher, he has mostly TV writing credits, which makes sense since this was written for television. Burl Ives was Ned Anderson. He's Big Daddy in Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. He's Sam the Snowman in Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. He also has a Best Supporting Actor Oscar for the role of Rufus Hannessy in Big Country. Christopher Connolly played Zeph. He was Henry in the first Benji movie. He's Norman Harrington in 490 episodes of Peyton Place. And he was also St. John Hawk, brother of Stringfellow Hawk, in a couple episodes of Airwolf. Mm -hmm. Weirdest family ever. Yeah. What should we name these two boys we had? Well, I was thinking Stringfellow and uh, St. John. What? Is it St. John or is it St. John? St. John. Okay. Unless Sinjin is spelt St. John. It is. Then Sinjin and Stringfellow, <laughs> which is insane. Joseph Campanella played Conrad. He was Jonathan Young in 98 episodes of The Bold and the Beautiful. Mark Gilpin played Dalem. He was Sean in Jaws 2, and we'll have him later this season as young John Reed, who grows up into adult John Reed, a.k.a. the Lone Ranger, in 1981's The Legend of the Lone Ranger. Peter Isaacson played Willie. He'll be back later this season as Homer in Under the Rainbow. John Shuck was Sheriff Dorita. We had him as Painless Waldowski in MASH. He's also Joe Henderson in MacGyver episode Bushmaster. Mm -hmm. Joey Foreman played Madden. The last time we saw this actor, he was Agent 13 in The Nude Bomb. But unfortunately for him, his IMDb profile picture is of him in yellow face with actual facial prosthetics to play Harry Who on the Get Smart series. Mm. Stuart Pankin is Sweeney. We saw him as Dudley in Hollywood Nights and Hangar 18 from the same director last year. We'll see him again later this year for An Eye for an Eye. He's likely best known for providing the voice of Earl Sinclair, patriarch of the Sinclair family on the dinosaurs. Or just dinosaurs? Uh, yeah, dinosaurs. H.M. Wynett played Dave. He was the flight director in Hangar 18. Listener Stephen Sperling from our Discord server is convinced that Wynant's character Dave here has been dubbed over by Paul Freeze, but neither of us was able to confirm it anywhere, so I'll let you decide for yourself. Here's Dave. 
I don't want to hear any more, Conrad. I've heard it all before. Too many times, and I warned you what was going to happen. And here's Paul Freeze. Is this haunted room actually stretching? I thought it was Robert Goulet for a moment. Maybe. No, I mean, like, just from the from the face. Oh, okay. I was like, is that Robert Maybe Goulet? it was Goulet's face ah. on H.M. Wynette's head. It was the first deep fake. I had I had one more uh, acting credit. Uh, it was an, it's an uncredited role of mom. Who is mom? I don't know. Ellen, <laughs> Ellen Anderson. Was there actually a person buried under that tombstone? <laughs> uh, the credit is uh, Anne Lockhart, daughter of June Lockhart. Oh, okay. Um, she's she from acts, Final Fantasy. Yeah. Oh no, that's Tifa Lockhart. That's Tifa. Um, she she does a lot of acting, mostly as background characters. Um, she gets, she's in Troll, right? Yes, she she is in the last shot of Troll playing her younger self from her mother, Jim right. Lockhart. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, mostly she does uh, a lot of ADR and voice looping. Okay. And it's like she's got a lot of credits for that. And I just thought, of, you know, I, I saw Anne Lockhart. There was a couple of people I looked up just by, based on their names. I think there was like a Dangerfield. I was like, that's not related to like Rodney Dangerfield, right? And it wasn't. No. Uh, but I saw Anne Lockhart, and I remember her from Troll. So I was like, okay, oh, it's, it's got to be the same Anne Lockhart. That's funny. No, I totally missed that name. I'm trying to think of who Mom would be. Yeah. Who? Who's Mom? I mean, there must just be somebody at that at the Founders Day celebration who has a kid with them or something. Yeah, because it's like it, uncredited roles include neighbor, man, mom, and also man. Man. <laughs> man. That's weird. Also, man, it's like the worst superhero ever. <laughs> yeah, that's like that superhero I made up called Area Man, and his superpower is just appearing in vague articles. <laughs> get it, guys? I don't know if you get it. I, I get it. I hard. never thought that joke was funny. It's it's always been funny. Anyway, this is a big thumbs up for me. No, I'm. It's not. It's a down. This movie is awful. Yeah, it was really dumb. It's hard to watch. It should never have been picked up as a TV show. How does the logic work that you're like, well, nobody would watch this on television. They definitely pay for a ticket to <laughs> well, see you in the theater, though. I mean, I guess just try to recoup your losses here. Just try to get some money back for everything you spent on this. We got to get that $20,000 back, guys. I don't yeah. know why they shot this much footage. Or do you think they added stuff after they decided to go movie with it? Like, was there I less? Think, I honestly it think it, it ended w- with them in the in the hotel room saying oh this is how we're going to survive we're going to live mm-hmm. in this hotel together and the whole bit about that's going still back so much i know there's still only so like 12 minutes than, after yeah, that yeah th- that's that's so much more than you would ever need for a pilot yeah maybe all of the uh the shot put stuff got added later too maybe they add, maybe they just they shot the entire season and then they're like crap they didn't they didn't pick this up but we actually we were shot so the whole sure. thing <laughs> <laughs> so we'll cut it down to a movie this is a shoe in guys just keep going <laughs> We're saving so much money shooting this on 16 millimeter. And John Shuck was apparently a little embarrassed about that the first time he saw a screening of it, and the the picture quality was so awful. And he was like, I I I'm not totally comfortable with this going in theaters. Like even Stunt Rock in 1980 was like 16 is not big enough. We have to just put the same picture up twice side by side <laughs> because 16 is too small to project in 35 millimeter. And they were correct. Um, but yeah. Um, that's, yeah, it's a thumbs down from me. Uh, let's see, where did I put this letterboxed? Uh, for letterboxd, I have this in sixth place though still. It's under Blood Beach and above Home Sweet Home. Yeah, same here. Same, same for me. Yeah. yeah. Our lists are very, very similar. 
And only because Home Sweet Home and Scream are that bad. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering what's going to be the next big definitive movie that's going to like, like you guys are going to put it at the bottom or I, and I put it on the top or vice versa. I don't know. We're going to find I'm out looking here. forward yeah. to it. I feel like it's pretty rare for you to put a movie on top and for us to put it down at the bottom. Um. Yeah. I or I definitely I think- had movies that were higher than they had any right to be. Yeah, like yeah. my bodyguard and inside moves. Like uh, the the like when time ran out, I had pretty high. I yeah. I did too though. But like you're pretty typically you hate like horror films that Patrick and I will like or mm. or just absurdist type movies. Like Caligula or Forbidden Zone. Yeah. <laughs> Caligula's an absurd movie. I didn't have Caligula. I, high, I think but... it's pretty absurd. <laughs> There's like three-headed people. Yeah, I think that's everything for Earthbound. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Letterboxd, where, as I said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord now. You can find a button at the top of our .com and join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future. Also, search for Vintage Video Podcast on YouTube and subscribe to our new channel there. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing The Incredible Shrinking Woman which IMDb describes like so. A housewife grows smaller and smaller in reaction to chemicals found in cosmetics and household products. We leave you now with a trailer for The Incredible Shrinking Woman. The strange story of Pat Kramer began on what seemed to be a perfectly normal day. Pat Kramer. She was a loving wife. Sweetheart. Hi, honey. How nice to you. Come on, under the covers. A devoted mother. Cool. <laughs> Expert homemaker. And then, one day, something incredible happened. We've got it. You are shrinking. Oh, God. No need to be upset, Mrs. Kramer. As long as you have on this ring, nothing's changed between us. I was pinched, poked, prodded. I was examined by specialists I never even knew existed. Universal Pictures presents Lily Tomlin as the incredible shrinking woman. The adventure of a brave woman whose biggest problem is growing smaller by the moment. I need a hit. <laughs> you mean she shrunk since the last time I saw her? You mean she shrunk since the last time I saw her? I almost sat on her last night. Can we give you a hand, dear? No one could help her. <laughs> no one could comfort her. could find her. Lily Tomlin, Charles Grodin, in the story of a woman who gave so much. Great little kidder. And got so little. More champagne. Now how about a big hand for the little lady, the incredible shrinking woman. <laughs>